Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hello there, and welcome to a pilot episode and the show we're going to call Micromobility. I'm Horace Dedu. You may have heard of the Critical Path as the show I've done in the past, as well as a sim car. With me, I have Oliver Bruce, and Oliver is actually on the other side of the earth from me right now. I'm in New England, and Oliver is in Auckland, New Zealand. Now, Oliver, some people know who I am, but I want you to tell them who you are and how we came together. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, everyone. My name's Oliver Bruce. Until recently, I was at Uber. I've worked in strategic projects and, and regional operations across Australia and New Zealand. Also headed up our global blockchain working group, looking at the opportunities in blockchain at Uber. I have a long history in sustainability and transport when I was at university and have been following the developments in transport. It's obviously one of the fastest growing areas of emissions, and I'm a bit of an environmentalist at heart. And so it's really been for me an opportunity in my career to unpack where disruptive innovation can really help reduce emissions and also as well enable new business models. And so I've been following what Horace is doing with the SIM car and getting really excited. And we started this conversation about, well, actually, there are these other things that are happening that isn't just bikes and isn't just, you know, transport as a service, but actually new business models are emerging and we can see new business models coming down the pipe that we think are going to be really, really, really impactful and make a really big difference in the world. So this is an opportunity for us to, to kind of explore that. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. Is that Horace? Yeah, thanks. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So, so Oliver actually did reach out to me a couple of years ago when I was on the critical path, or maybe he was listening to a SIP car. I don't remember, but but I think we wanted to sort of have a conversation on what is going on in the shared mobility space. And sort of he educated me on a few details. And then recently he reached out and said, hey, listen, I'm actually going to be leaving Uber. I'd like to talk to you about maybe doing some kind of podcast together. And And so we ended up creating this podcast because I didn't really fit into the existing two shows that I've been doing, which is Critical Path, which is all about Apple and really mobility as, as a consumer electronics business. And, and it's funny because transportation and mobility, the word is strangely, coincidentally, in common between these two spheres. And it's sort of a, a coincidence that when we think in computing about mobility, we think about small devices. And so it's interesting that you see repetition here, and there's a lot of sort of a rhyme that happens on micro and mobility in terms of the evolution of transportation towards a smaller form factor. So the, the, the title of the show is Modern Mobility, and the subtitle is the disruption that comes from micromobility. And so micromobility is the idea, and then this is actually a transliteration of a German word, which means vehicles which are not cars, and yet they are motorized. It really comes from a regulatory uh, setting, and I like it for another reason, which is, again, the blend of the history of computing, because microcomputing, what came to be known as personal computing, used to be called microcomputing, which itself was an extension of mini-computing, which was an alternative to regular computing, which were the mainframes of the 1960s and 70s. So by the 1980s, 
a microcomputer was an Apple II or eventually in 1980s, it was an IBM PC. But for about a decade or so, we really talked about microcomputers instead of talking about PCs. So microcomputing is, predates the PC. So having said all that, micromobility and modern mobility are the theme of the show. And what we're trying to do is capture the idea, and it's a disruptive idea, but that the, the greatness of innovation that will happen in, in transportation will not come from making big cars better, which is what a lot of autonomy thinking is about. It's not either just making them shared, although sharing is important to the whole story, but it's very much focused on what happens at the low end. What happens when you look at really small vehicles? What happens when you think about the human body, what you need as a minimum to move it? And so it's about personal transportation. We might touch a little bit on public transportation, but it is very much about the individual being moved as opposed to the community, which these two blend at some point, but we really want to focus on personal transport. And cycling is one part of it. But the thing about machines that help us move is going to be more focused on motorized machines. So, for example, an e-bike or assisted bikes, that's interesting to us. Anything from skateboards with motors in them all the way up to four-wheel vehicle with a motor in it. The, the, the distinction is going to be a weight boundary. And the weight I'm picking right now is 500 kilograms, which is about 110 pounds. And the reason I picked that weight is because there are almost no cars that are that small or that light. So anyway, Oliver... Tell me why you're motivated by this space. And I want to talk about sharing. And also, you mentioned blockchains. Um, yeah, so two things I'd add to that. One is, as a proud owner of an e-bike, I have just been like blown away by that experience. And I remember listening to you talking about this sort of disruptive potential of e-bikes when you kind of realize that actually what it does is it, it really enables people to travel a lot further with what was a traditional bike. It really solves a different job to be done. And they've kind of been a sleeper hit here in New Zealand and I've watched them evolve. But I think the thing that I can see that's coming is around this idea, what comes when you have this sort of new technology and then the business model that will evolve around it. What I'm really interested in is, is tracking that and the kind of explosion in sharing, especially around electric vehicles, especially small electric vehicles, because you can just see they're onto something, but nobody's quite really cracked it yet. There's obviously some really active acquisitions going on in the space at the moment. Right. Yeah. Actually, we should mention, so Jump was just acquired by Uber. Jump is um, a bike sharing system that's been around for a long time, but they just, just started doing e-bike sharing with a sort of a smart bike, if you will, a bike with onboard compute sensing and communications. Similarly is Didi in China, which didn't quite acquire, but invested heavily in Ofa, which is one of the pioneering bike sharing systems in China. And we're going to probably do a whole show about China bike share. And it's particularly interesting because from a disruption point of view, bike owning, bike networks and getting people to share their cars are very distinct business models. The one thing about bike sharing is that it's you have to own the bikes. Whoever is sharing them has to have that asset on its books. Whereas when you're classic car sharing business, you don't have any assets on your books. Your cars are owned by their drivers, which are essentially contractors. And this is why this is such a different thing. It's fascinating that 
nonetheless, they considered it important enough to invest in this space. The reason, by the way, just again, I'm, I'm going to have a lot to say, but this is one thing that I think is very important, is the segmentation I just discussed in terms of micromobilities between lightweight or small, physically tiny vehicles, and then this boundary layer of 500 kilograms. But there's another way to look at it, which is by the distances that they travel. And the distances that small vehicles travel are typically quite small. And the distances that large vehicles travel are typically quite large. I mean, you can easily see that at the extremes where it's unlikely that you on a skateboard are going to go very far, maybe one or two uh, kilometers or miles. Whereas if you're in a ship or an airplane, which are the largest vehicles we have, you're going to go very far distance. And so in between, you've got all these classifications. Now, the thing about cars is that they're very flexible. They can go short distances. They can go pretty long distances. So over time, it has grown to have this very broad span of applicability. But the interesting thing about micro vehicles is that they are so good at short distances that they're beginning to displace the car from it. And I think this is what was observed in China is that these cycling solutions were starting to eat up the zero to three kilometer range trips. And so Didi, who provides services to ride sharing services, was actually seeing, according to management there, was actually seeing a decline in their zero to three kilometer business because of ride sharing. And we know millions and millions of people are riding those every day that the active user base, I think, is 70 million right now. That's daily active users. And what's interesting is that these micro vehicles are increasingly getting better, increasingly generating demand for the short distances that they cover, often not just taking share from an existing transport, but rather actually creating demand by saying, well, I wouldn't have taken this trip if it wasn't for the availability of a bike or a scooter outside my door. The induction of demand is clearly what got us to the traffic we have today, built in partly to satisfy the demand that the automobile created. And so historically, this is one of the interesting things about transportation overall, when you study it, is that it creates demand, as did computing, as did communications. People didn't have an inherent need to always be in touch with each other before the telephone and before computing. So we're seeing this very, very interesting phenomenon applied to transportation, the creation of demand. And I think at the low end, it's fascinating how that's playing out. Anyway, love to get into this, and we will get into a lot of this. What I wanted to do is maybe give you a list of some interesting topics that we want to talk about. So we talk about what is micromobility, why it actually affects transportation in cities primarily. So this is how do we track progress? How do we define success? How do we measure it? How do we observe it daily? This sort of data we're going to be looking at in terms of cities and and regulations, how it might even affect real estate, how it might affect our living environments. And, And this is sort of a meta question, but it is actually, again, historically, it's been shown that transport does affect all of that. The next question would be, what does computing have to do with it? I think one of the lovely things is that computers in the form of, let's say, smartphones or smartphone technologies easily is absorbed onto these micro vehicles. It's like they're made for each other, like a bike and a smartphone sort of can get married and and have beautiful babies. (laughs) It's, It's true. I mean, it's much easier for those two to get together than for a 
car to get together with a smartphone. They've sort of been ignoring each other now for many, many years. And and this is one of the themes we talked about on a SIM car is why is that? Why is it that when you offer a smartphone technology to a car maker, they shrug and they give you a cup holder in exchange? To this day, they still haven't standardized on a way to get your phone docked into your car. And yet, I know many startups which are in embedding smartphones into their scooters or bikes or shared vehicles. The phrase I use is sort of a mind for the bicycle. A mind for the bicycle is the microcomputer that's going to be embedded in the bicycle. And this is a take on a bicycle for the mind, which is what Steve Jobs said a computer was. And we think of it as kind of now bringing intelligence to the vehicle more quickly through a micro vehicle than through a large vehicle. It also has to do with the lifespan of the vehicles and their lead time to being put into production. Cars are notoriously slow. The faster the car, the slower it is. Or the faster the vehicle, the slower it is. The fastest vehicles we have are airplanes, and they take 30 years to gestate. You know, in terms of road transport, the fastest vehicles we have is cars, and they take five, six years to gestate. And if you look at a micro vehicle, they're slow and pokey, but you know, you can get one out in about six months. They are actually on the similar life cycle to smartphones themselves. So where you can see the cadence of smartphones being yearly in terms of new product introductions, that can be maintained easily with the micro vehicle. Yeah, the other thing with this as well that's really interesting is just because of the low price points, it also means as well that the likelihood that they'll be replaced with and you know the length of time that the product will actually be held on to is typically lower exactly. as well. And so what you end up with is this far quicker periods of iteration and also as exactly. well adoption inside that technology curve. So it, quick gestation period, and if in shared use, they have a fairly short lifespan. Now, it could be two, three years, depending on utilization. And then you can look at the numbers. And if a vehicle is used three, four times a day, you'll see it wearing out in a couple of years, which is about the, the lifespan of a phone as well. By the way, phones wear out mostly because the battery also wears out. And this is another component that's going to have high utilization in a shared micro vehicle. And we're assuming, of course, that these are electric vehicles. So they're benefiting from battery technologies. They're benefiting from compute technologies. They're synchronized in terms of product development cycles. They're also synchronized in terms of life cycles. You can see how these two are, like I said, get along real well as technologies. The mind for the bicycle is a sort of the second theme we want to touch on after micromobility overall. Then the next thing is like really understanding the car as a bundle. And this is something I've been proposing for a while, and I, I call the unbundling of the car, I call it the great unbundling. Economically speaking, you can make money two different ways, bundling and unbundling. And whenever you see a great disruption occur, it's usually because the business model unbundled or bundled that which was the opposite before it. Historically, actually, the car was a bundling of something that was unbundled. If you go back to the pre-automobile times, you had transportation that was essentially piecemeal. You could walk, you could take a tram, you could take a train, you could take a horse, but it was very hard to complete journeys without transferring between these modes. When we think about bundling, the car did that, and it was very successful doing it for a century. 
country. But now when we are in environments where we have huge amounts of congestion, we also have huge infrastructural strain, because not only forget about the environmental impact, which will be a very strong top-down pressure from governments and otherwise, but if you look at bottom-up pressure on the car, it's the fact that you can't get around very quickly with one, especially in the city. And so what happens is all those things that it was creating as a benefit, actually getting through London or major metropolitan area is slower in a car than, than in many alternatives, especially these new micro-vehicles. So you have these pressures building in cities, and the relief valve for that will be micromobility. But the, if you unbundle the car, you realize that what the economics of it were, that you prepaid for a lot of trips, or you, at least you prepaid for the optionality for a lot of trips. And that was a very expensive prepayment. You'd spend 35000 I think that's the average price in the United States in dollars for a car. And then you'd have to pay insurance, and you'd have to pay fuel, and you'd have to pay maintenance, and you'd have to pay repair. And on and on it goes, and a lot of extra costs which are recurring, but still that upfront payment, which maybe was financialized into a set of payments. But nonetheless, the idea was that the manufacturer gets one lump of money every time they produce a car. That logic was, again, a bundling situation when you look at it economically and what is delivered. And so the unbundling is the idea that, well, you might use ride sharing, you might use public transit, and you might use micromobility. And the challenge will be actually to make that a seamless experience to transition between these, which actually is where a lot of the advanced theories about what we're going to do to tokenize this stuff. And that's where we, we're going to touch on crypto assets as well and, and block chain technologies. And then we're going to talk about why is this actually a show for technology people? And, you know, until now, we thought that software and vehicles meant autonomy, meant robot driving. But it isn't the only way you can inject software intelligence into the system. These vehicles are intelligent because they know know where you're heading and know where they're dropping you off. And on top of that, they're imaging and sensing vehicles. And so they help cities also to become intelligent about their environment and knowing what doesn't work. So they're learning environments for the city as a network. And furthermore, they are essentially a distributed robot. It might seem odd, but if you think about millions of phones, already millions of phones are acting as a distributed intelligence for communicating devices. But when these are also moving devices, we have this notion or this premise of distributed computing as a software revolution. The reason, again, why micromobility is more important or more valuable in this context is that the adoption curve for, for micro vehicles is so steep relative to smart cars, as we talked about, the, you know, they're just synchronized with the release cycles that we're going to get to tens, maybe hundreds of millions of these vehicles available in much, much faster than single-digit millions of, of cars that are going to be available, at least speaking the same language. And because these are assets under the control of one entity, we are going to see potentially a lot of economies of scale happening very quickly. I'll give one example. I think if you were to ask, well, how many BMWs are in the world? Well, you can get a rough estimate because we know how many they're selling every year and we know roughly how long they live. And I think I calculated that there's 25 to 30 million BMWs in use at any time. 
but it's nowhere near hundreds of millions. And that's where you would need to be to have a software platform and have intelligence that you can really leverage. So it may be fine for BMW to try to get their 30 million users onto their platform, but the idea of really creating intelligence is going to require much more than that. And BMW is only example because there's over 50 such companies in the world. Even the largest doesn't have more than about 10% market share. So uh, Toyota would be number one as a single brand. And that's barely, barely 10 million units a year. So, you know, with phones running in the billions of year, units a year, we can see, imagine a scenario where having a software platform on hundreds of millions of micromobile vehicles would create the economies and the intelligence that we need to sort of really, really get smart machine-to-machine intelligence, machine-to-city or to infrastructure. All of these elements that we've dreamt of as far as making smart cities, those elements are going to be there much more quickly with these vehicles than they are with cars. Absolutely. And I think that there's also, it's really fascinating to see how jurisdictions, especially in more democratic countries, are responding to the rise of, for example, the electric scooters. And I'm just thinking specifically of Bird being issued with with $125 fines because, you know, San Francisco is freaking out about all these electric scooters that are running around the streets. I think there's going to be this really interesting examination that we can also look at here. How are these technologies absorbed and what are the, the other technologies that will sit around that as well? So. Absolutely. And in fact, to me, to some people, this looks scary when you have the reaction of cities of sort of panicking and, and trying to regulate these vehicles. And it looks like it's a really chaotic. That is true. It is chaotic. But that's also signifying that there's a huge amount of demand, that there's a huge amount of capital being applied. That means change. And change is sometimes really painful. And change is sometimes in response to things going wrong. It's in response to things happening And so I would be actually encouraged by this reactionary movement to micro vehicles. I see it a lot in disruption where the new thing is considered to be anything from obscene to immoral to danger to life and limb. We've seen this over and over again. And in fact, if if something comes along and it's considered safe and conforming and all of those things that are consistent with society today, that's most likely implying that it's not disruptive, that it is, in fact, sustaining. And when you see collaborative efforts into trying to introduce new things where regulators sit down together with manufacturers, with stakeholders, and everybody's happy, you're not going to be creating truly world-changing technologies. In some ways, you will have a back and forth. And I'm not saying that every experiment and every attempt to make new things happen is the correct way of doing things, but it is indicative of the vitality of creative destruction. And that's at the heart of innovation that really, at the end, changes the world. You know, it's we're impatient because the planet is under stress, but also because we're just not seeing the rate of change in the existing infrastructures that are necessary to get us to the goals we need to get to. So anyway, a few more things to talk about, and you know, sort of as a preview here. We talked about distance a lot. And so we want to think about how to imagine the world as what are called isochrones. Isochrones are how far can you get in a certain amount of time. So if I have half an hour, how far can I get? And you look at different vehicle types, 
the, in the congested urban environments, which, by the way, it's about 3 billion people, there'll be 5 billion people living in cities by 2050. And so when you think about these, the fact that the globe is urbanizing and that 5 billion people will be urban dwellers, then we have to really solve the problem in an urban environment. The distances there are super important as far as how far you can get on a certain mode. So there's this question of urbanism, there's this question of isochronic thinking, and how do we map the demand of travel? And then there's a thing called Marchetti's Constant, we'll introduce that conjecture, that people will have a fixed transportation budget in terms of time. And that's gonna be relevant to this isochronic worldview the other thing I want to bring up and be a little bit academic, but this way of thinking about distances, understanding the functions that govern our travels. And so one of those functions is the log normal function. We'll educate a little bit about that and, and then dig into what that means and how we can compare modalities. By Modalities, by the way, are different modes of transport. So a train is a mode and an airplane is a mode and walking is a mode and how these modes, each one, is represented by a log-normal function. And, and so what that means, and it's sort of a, it's really, to me, it's, it's a bit nerdy, but I'm, I'm, trust me. I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks for the, for the um, lessons. They're a really easy way to understand that. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I give you the, this is the elevator pitch. So imagine a normal function, let's say people's heights. People's heights are distributed normally. So you're going to divide people's heights into bins. Now you could say, let's do a bin between five centimeters. See the number of people who are between, let's say, 100 centimeters and 105, and then from 105 to 110. And you see, if you put those together, you get this beautiful bell curve, right? This is the classic normal distribution or sometimes called Gaussian. This is what everybody assumes probabilities look like. In transportation, it's a beautiful shape in the same way, but it really, really skewed. All the trip distances, all the action is at the low end. The physical universe is very logarithmic. When we think about travel, which is actually a social activity in the sense that people travel for social reasons, behavior itself, am I willing to tolerate getting out of bed and moving, and the energy I need to go a certain distance, these are all fundamentally rooted and exponentially more costly to go further. So my tendency and willingness to go far is much, much more than my willingness. So it's not, it doesn't go up linearly. My, the effort I need to go far is exponentially harder. So as a result, I don't go far. I go short distances very frequently, and I'm sort of bounding myself to how far I can go. If I introduce a vehicle, my willingness to go further increases, but the shape of the curve doesn't change. I'm still much more willing to go shorter distances than I am to go long distances. And because of that, this is a fundamental human behavior observation. This log normal function is the impedance function, which means it's like this is the resistance force that keeps you from going randomly anywhere. If you had, let's say, teleportation, Okay, so this is a great thought experiment. If you have teleportation, and therefore your cost to travel anywhere in the planet or anywhere in, in the universe is zero, then we would probably all distribute ourselves evenly everywhere. And the distances that we would travel would probably be normally distributed because, you know, let's say, the, you know, normally would be the median or the average distance we would travel would be halfway around the world. Because, you know, chances are for me to go to New Zealand, it takes as much effort as for me to go to Europe. 
Europe. You know, I'll just go randomly everywhere, but on average, I think maybe we'll just sort of cluster around certain continents, right? But it turns out because we have this energy and time constraint and money, fundamentally, which reflects all of those things, then we tend to travel shorter distances more frequently. And the, the amazing thing is, and I'm hesitant to claim a lot of credit here because I haven't done a lot of literature search on who's done this before, but I have observed a bunch of modes, a bunch of places, and they all follow the same log normal function. And I reached out to researchers at ETH in Switzerland, by the way. Uh, it's like the MIT of Switzerland. If, if I put it this way, it's a university where Albert Einstein taught. So it's a pretty good uh, university. They are actually working together to write a paper on this. And so the logic there is that log normal, as when it applies to micromobility, is really indicative of how competitive it is relative to other modes. And we can do it mathematically, So, which is why it's really cool. The other thing we want to talk about is, I've got a list here I'm reading off of, um, the uh, sort of history. And this is fascinating to me as well, because if you want to really know the future, why not just look at the past and see how it evolved into the present? And this is a simple technique. So what historical do, but if you wanted to know what the world was before the car, well, we can find out. We can go back before the car and see how it was. Can we go back to that world? Does it make sense? What were the reasons why it was the way it was? And what's interesting to me is that there's actually a lot of video out there nowadays on YouTube. So people have found archival footage of there's a film about it was I think 1905 or 1906. It was like right before the great earthquake in San Francisco, and somebody's taking a tram down Market Street, and people are all, like, mouths open, just astonished how traffic looked like back then, how people moved around back then. So this is right at the cusp of the automobile. It was existing, but it wasn't very popular. So you see a few cars, but mostly you see wagons and pedestrians and animals, all kinds of animals and dogs and manure, everything in this, in this Market Street, which nowadays is a car-choked street. But anyway, the point is that I'm, we're going to go through this experiment where we're going to understand what the world was like before the car and understand how the introduction of a new mode, a, a new vehicle type, changed everything. And then, based on that A to B, if you will, we're going to look at C, you know, what happens when you introduce yet another thing. And it hasn't happened. We haven't had new modalities for ground transport for over a century. And this is fascinating to me because we have trains, but they existed pre-car. We have bicycles. They existed pre-car. So we have trams and other transit vehicles. If you were to ask, well, what's been introduced? Well, we haven't really had success with monorails. We haven't really had success with rocket vehicles. We haven't had success with personal transportation, right? Like some kind of rocket pack or these things have been prototyped but never really successful. We've had the helicopter, but again, that has been banned from city transport. I think the, the other thing that's also really interesting to this is what the impact of that is on infrastructure. And so when we look at cities, for example, you know, the tram lines, for example, and where those ran, and then where subsequently infrastructure and buildings and housing, et cetera, were built in cities, is oftentimes so dependent upon that, the way that we've built our infrastructure. And for the last, especially 50 years, in a lot of Western cities, New Zealand, et cetera, you've got the blunt tool of the car and everything has been built around the car and as you see the rise of this new modality how will infrastructure change around that and you can already see it is happening with the rise of bike lanes and the fact that you know more or less this big political fight in a lot of cities around hey you know you're taking perfectly good car or parking space and turning it into these things for bikes 
what does that actually start to look like in the longer term and and you know and subsequently where do people start thinking about living if all of a sudden they're going to have access to this micro mobility or micro mobile devices that allow them to effectively have kind of superpowers and where they can walk in their neighborhood or walk or get around easily Absolutely. So the thing about infrastructure, this is another segue into the topic of the show. One of the topics of the show would be, you know, what is the role of infrastructure? Should we be thinking really like city planners do about redesigning our roads or redesigning our facilities like parking facilities? And we can spend a show on, for example, the Dutch and the great transformation that occurred in Holland and also in Copenhagen in Denmark is I've had the pleasure of actually visiting both of those places and also observing and speaking with people from those communities and see how different they have been and sort of the proof of existence of an alternative future there. And yet there are limits because we see those having taken 30 years in some cases to evolve. Even more than that, I think that the effort in the Netherlands to embrace the bicycle began in the 1970s still an ongoing process 40 years later. And again, cars are somewhat faster than roads in terms of change. But since these micro vehicles are like virus-like in terms of their ability to replicate and their ability to evolve, how can they possibly coexist with infrastructure that has taken a century to get to where it is today? And yet, again, there's hope. And the reason to look at how long it took for infrastructures to evolve around communications and around other systems, if you will, aviation is one, looking at the rate of change there, especially in the early years when it went from zero to a mass market product. We're look at also communications is much easier because it's over the air, so we have a lot less physical infrastructure to deal with, but there's still quite a bit of physical infrastructure needed to get to the point where we are today with mobile computing. We'll bring in some other thought leaders on this space. So a few other buzzwords here, modal shifts we talked about, urbia and exurbia, sort of what is the role of suburbs? How do they exist? How do they come to be? What enabled them? Will that change? Will that revert? Part of that is also autonomy. We get to that in a second as well. Electric. I call this, by the way, the question of autonomy, I sort of posit as a one of three things that are talked about as disruptions. One is sharing or vehicle no longer owned and operated by the same person. Two is this idea of driverless cars. Third is electric drive itself. So Tesla is positioned on electric and a lot of people are are believers in electric as a disruptive force. Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't. I tend to think it isn't. But with a caveat, which is to say that in combination, some of these things are disruptive, but each one may be an enabler. And what's missing from this three-legged stool is this notion that micromobility might actually be the perfect shared electric intelligent vehicle. It's actually perfect because it's accessible it's available and it's rapid in terms of its proliferation. And so rather than saying that all those efforts are not disruptive, I would say that let's look at it from this perspective of the low end. The thing that's fastest tends to dominate, not because it's better, but because it's faster and proliferates, right? This is the what we learned from computing is that Windows beat everybody because it was faster and was faster because it was enabled by essentially commodity hardware that could be built very quickly, right? The next topic, I want to talk about securitization. I think this is this is a question of 
can we actually afford hundreds of millions of these things on the street? And who's going to pay for them? We think about the evolution of an owned vehicle to a shared vehicle to a micro vehicle to a fleet of micro vehicles under one or multiple, but still the relatively centralized control. And then fundamentally, then actually having that asset be shared back into the community. And so that evolution, that transport and the means for transport are not necessarily in the hands of individuals, but nor are they in the hands of corporations. This is an interesting potential. And I think the, the way that can be realized is through this, uh, this innovation of tokenization, as I call it. And we haven't settled on the terms yet, but something to do with securitizing the asset base through a encrypted token. We'll get into this because also it enables multimodality, it enables transitions. And we'll also apply that to the goods business, which is actually going through this transition earlier than the personal transportation business. I think we have a lot more to say, a lot more details. I think for now, we should probably just uh, let you breathe a little bit. We have a kind of a to-do list. We have a list of these topics we want to cover because there are terms of, of art or language, then we can agree that this is the language we use. And you can call them theories, you can call them conjectures, but we need to put them out there. And then we also want to have the audience engage through questions we're going to put out there, a hashtag on Twitter, the way I've done it with Critical Paths. So we want to get inbound questions and we might do Q&A as people object violently to what we say. Uh, so I'd love to have the debate. And yeah, welcome to uh, micromobility and welcome to modern mobility. <laughs>